Support comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about stem cell transplants with Dr. Stuart Seropian. Dr. Seropian is an associate professor of hematology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So I think, Stuart, that uh, I hear a lot of people who have heard a lot about stem cell research and all the controversies around stem cell research and embryos. And when they hear about stem cell transplant, is that the same thing? A very, very different thing, Steve. Uh, uh, stem cell transplant is used to treat uh, cancers, predominantly uh, cancers of the blood, uh, and some other cancers, uh, but the stem cells that we use are, are not the uh, embryonic stem cells you hear about in the news where there's controversy. Uh, these are cells that uh, make blood and other elements of the immune system, and they're used for clinical purposes. They've been around for uh, more than 30 years, uh, and there's very little controversy about their use. Hmm. Why? That sounds a lot like what I thought was called bone marrow transplant. Uh, when, when stem cell transplant, in fact, it did start with bone marrow as the source for the cells, uh, and that's still used today, although cells, uh, stem cells can also be procured from the blood. Uh, and in fact, more stem cell transplants are performed with cells that are procured from the blood nowadays than uh, bone marrow. Hmm. So a bone marrow transplant is a form of a stem cell transplant. I see. Uh, can you walk th uh, our listeners through sort of what's involved in a stem cell transplant, who might get one, um, and what might happen if they had one? Uh, patients are, are referred for stem cell transplants, usually by a treating hematologist or oncologist uh, who is managing uh, a case of uh, a blood cancer, typically. Uh, so that would be a disease like multiple myeloma, for instance. That's the most common indication for transplantation around the world. Uh, but other diseases like leukemia, lymphoma, myelodysplasia, also some uh, uh, diseases of the bone marrow that are not cancers, hmm. uh, such as aplastic anemia, for instance. Uh, so patients may be referred for consideration of a transplant. Uh, now, there are two major different types of transplantation mm -hmm. uh, that are, are different uh, with regard to the manner in which they're conducted, uh, but also different in terms of the mechanisms by which they may help a patient. So an autologous stem cell transplant, which is the most common procedure, involves using a patient's stem cells, which are taken from the blood and frozen, and then they're administered later on after a patient receives very strong chemotherapy. So and these are the patient's own stem that, cells? That's correct. Okay. And, and their purpose is to help rebuild the blood system after very strong chemotherapy is administered so that that strong chemotherapy can be administered safely. Okay. So the, the, the mechanism uh, by which that transplant may benefit a patient is really by allowing us to give a very strong treatment, a very strong chemotherapy uh, regimen. Uh, the other major type of transplant is referred to as an allogeneic transplant. Allogeneic? 
That's correct. So in, in that case, the cells are obtained from someone else. So the patient, typically a patient with a leukemia, uh, may need a transplant, and we don't want to use their cells. Why not? Uh, well, so leukemia grows in the, in the blood and the bone marrow, uh, and uh, often if you try to collect stem cells from the blood or bone marrow in those patients, you'll collect many leukemic cells, hmm. so that can be problematic. Uh, the use of very strong chemotherapy is a uh, component of treatment that may help leukemic patients, uh, but it often doesn't cure those patients. Uh, when we get cells from a donor, such as a sibling, a brother, or a sister, or an unrelated donor, uh, we're replacing the immune system, and it's often the action of the immune system that helps to cure the patient. Uh, could you explain that more? Well, uh, the immune system, I think many people probably hear in the news nowadays, a very, uh, very powerful tool to fight cancer. There's a lot of different forms of immunotherapy that are being developed or, or have been developed and are, are being used now for patients. I've seen some of those uh, on commercials on TV. Yeah, yeah and they're useful for, for many cancers. Allogeneic transplant, one might think of as one of the original forms of immunotherapy. Uh, when we replace a patient's blood and immune system, with uh, the stem cells from a donor who's, who's matched, typically a brother or sister, uh, we're replacing the immune system with an immune system that, that always has some differences, and, unless it's an identical twin. We're, we're matching uh, patients with their donors as best we can with the genes we know are very important in the immune system. But there are, there are always some differences between the immune systems uh, of siblings or, or patients and volunteer donors. These differences, uh, turn out to translate into some action of the donor's immune system identifying cancer cells in the recipient or patient uh, and that uh, results in uh, improved cure rates compared to a lot of other therapies. So what you're saying, if I understand it, is that the donor cells, although they're matched, somehow are fighting residual cancer cells? That, that's right. That's right. In fact, the, there's a term for that in the transplant literature that's called graft versus leukemia. The graft are the donor cells, and they react against the leukemic cells. Now, allogeneic transplantation really is an organ transplant. We're replacing a part of the body, just like uh, a patient uh, who needs a new kidney gets a kidney transplant. In this case, there's no surgery. It's blood therapy. Uh, but it is a it is a organ transplant where a patient gets a new immune system because it's uh, always a little bit different. Uh, there can be reactions against other normal tissues, uh, so uh, it's a more complicated procedure. Uh, but that graft versus leukemia effect uh, seems to be pretty powerful and results in. Uh, high cure rates for leukemias compared to a lot of our other therapies. Hmm. You said there's no surgery. So how do they get the bone marrow into the bone? They don't, they don't like, have to put a, some kind of needle in the bone and inject it? Like if a, the donor cells come from the bone marrow or from the peripheral blood, they're, they're still a blood product uh, that, that may look indistinguishable from a regular bag of blood, and it's infused in the bloodstream, and the, the stem cells are... Uh, program to go back to the bone marrow, which is where they'll set up shop and start making blood. Uh, that usually takes a few weeks, uh, and during that time, patients are typically in the hospital, although not always, 
uh, and they do require special support. Hmm. Well, that sounds great if you've got these, like, you know, uh, commando cells, I guess, uh, going after these uh, uh, cancer cells. So, so why wouldn't all these patients who need transplants, like you, those myeloma patients you were talking about and stuff, wh- why don't they get donor transplants typically? Well, so uh, some do, uh, and uh, it's not always clear which type of transplant is best for uh, any particular patient. Uh, When we uh, think a patient can benefit by a transplant using their own cells uh, with the use of uh, strong chemotherapy, we prefer that procedure because it's much safer, it's simpler, uh, recovery time uh, tends to be shorter. And uh, in the case of myeloma, for instance, uh, there are many good therapies for multiple myeloma that are available nowadays. Uh, Transplantation is one of them. Uh, and it can help many patients, but many patients can do very well for a very long period of time, either without transplant or with the incorporation of transplant and continuation of other therapies. So th- that's a disease where uh, an autologous transplant using the patient's own cells uh, has fit in very nicely and is associated with uh, uh, fairly long survival times. Uh, other diseases like acute leukemias uh, that graft versus leukemia effect uh, really is necessary for many of those patients if they're going to survive long term. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a riskier procedure because of the immune complications or the potential for those immune complications. But we, we tend to choose that procedure when we feel like the other therapies we have uh, are not going to benefit the patient in a, in a on the longer term. Hmm. So it, what I'm hearing is that it kind of depends on the biology of the disease, I guess, huh? That's correct. Uh-huh. Uh, there are other factors, the health of the patient, the availability of a well-matched donor, uh, and uh, and the state of the, the, the cancer in question. Hmm. So how is it? how easy is it uh, for patients to find a donor? I mean, I've got two sibs, and if God forbid I, I needed one, I, I guess I could just ask them to do it, right? So you, you have a 25% chance of being fully matched with one of your siblings. Nowadays, we are fairly successful in finding donors for most of our patients because we have many donor options. So we prefer a sibling, and that's the, the most tried and true, straightforward way to perform a transplant with a donor. But uh, there's a worldwide registry now of volunteer donors we have preliminary testing that we can access very quickly to see if we might be able to find an unrelated donor through the National Marrow Donor Program or from other parts of the world that are connected to the National Marrow Donor Program. Uh, and then there are other ways to do transplant uh, with donors who aren't fully matched. Hmm. Well, probably want to talk about that. In a, in a few minutes, because that certainly sounds very interesting. But let's go back to this um, kind of this, these more typical situations. Um, so if a sibling were to be available, what they, they just have to donate some blood? Is that how it works? Uh, the, the testing to determine the compatibility with the donor and recipient uh, can be done with blood tests or for uh, donors who are not local. We, we send them a, a little kit that has what looks like a Q-tip and they get some DNA from their cheek. They just swab the inside of their mouth, mm-hmm. and they mail it in, and we, we test the genes. Uh, there's 10 genes that are usually tested. 
uh, and we want to match those up. Mm. Uh, that takes a, a week or two. Uh, if the donor is identified and matched, uh, they come to the center and have a medical evaluation uh, and uh, typically will receive a injection for four days of a, uh, a medicine uh, that will get the stem cells uh, out of the bone marrow into the blood in high numbers, and then mm. the cells can be collected from the bloodstream through a procedure called apheresis. That sounds complicated. Uh, it's a little bit like donating blood. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes several hours, and oh. uh, it might be done for one day or two days, rarely three days uh, in a row. It's an outpatient procedure, uh, and it's fairly well tolerated, a little tiring. People usually take a few days off from work afterwards. But no major long-term effects for the donor? Uh, uh, generally, no. No, very safe procedure. And, of course, donors are qualified to make sure that they're healthy and there aren't any additional risks or, or concerns. So how do you organize it? Like if, say, a donor's in Russia or India or some other place, do they have to come here and, so and if it's do a, that? So if it's a sibling donor, uh, then um, uh, we do try to get donors to come to our center, although the National Marrow Donor Program has a a new program that is available to some donors around the world where uh, a sibling can go to a donor center uh, that works with the National Marrow Donor Program and have their cells collected in the, the same fashion as a matched volunteer unrelated donor uh, would do. Okay, and, and then, the, then the cells are shipped? Uh, the cells are, are shipped. Uh, they're, they're, they're put in a uh, cooler, and then they're brought here by a courier. Hmm. And so that, it's, it's not FedEx. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, the same is true with the voluntary donors. That's, that's correct. That's uh -huh. correct. And, and that's done in real time, meaning uh, when a transplant is pan, uh, planned, a um, patient is admitted to the hospital and they receive chemotherapy. Uh, and the day or two before the transplant, uh, the donor cells are collected hmm. uh, and they're brought via courier to our center. And then they're administered. Uh, to the patient on the day of the transplant, uh, fresh within uh, 48 to 72 hours. Hmm. A lot of planning sounds like uh, a lot of moving parts. A That's lot of correct. moving parts you got to coordinate. Well, the, uh, this is a really very interesting subject, and I'm certainly going to want to hear about some of these alternative kinds of transplants that you mentioned. But right now, we're going to take a short break for medical minute. Please stay tuned to uh, learn more information about stem cell transplantation with Dr. Stuart Seropian. Support comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. 
and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Stuart Seropian. We're talking about stem cell transplants for the treatment mostly of blood and bone marrow cancers. Stuart, you had mentioned uh, before the break that um, there's now um, more sources of uh, stem cell donation or donors uh, besides traditional siblings and uh, voluntary matched donors. First of all, how many patients in general find a donor with those first two um, searches, the, the siblings and the, the donor registries? It, it depends in, in part on your ethnicity, uh, actually, um, and, and of course the number of siblings you have. Um, but we, we find donors and uh, match donors in the family uh, less than half the time. Mm. So we're, we often turn to the, uh, uh, the registries, the worldwide registries. Uh, but uh, not all uh, ethnicities are equally represented in the registries. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we may find a, a match donor in more than in half of uh, uh, Caucasian patients who are of European descent. Uh, but the statistics are much lower for other ethnicities, uh, sometimes as low as 10 or 20 percent. Uh, if we're willing to accept a donor uh, that's not matched for all of the genes, uh, then we may find donors and more patients. Uh, but those uh, types of transplants are more complicated, and, and that's not uh, preferred. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's some patients who just can't find donors. So if we don't find a donor through the registry uh, in a, a volunteer, uh, unrelated donor, uh, there are other choices uh, to perform transplants. Uh, one of those choices is umbilical cord blood. Uh, umbilical cord blood is stored at the time of delivery of a child, uh, and that's a, a rich source of stem cells. The concentration of the stem cells that we require uh, is high in cord blood. Uh, unfortunately, cord blood products are a small volume, meaning the absolute number of stem cells uh, is not very high. Uh, and what that means, uh, practically speaking, is cord blood uh, is a, a very good graft source uh, for very small patients, mm. namely children. Uh, and uh, it, it's used in adults, and that's a very specialized manner of transplantation that uh, is not done in every center. Uh, in adults, particularly uh, in a normal or larger adult, sometimes two cord bloods are required uh, to ensure engraftment. Mm. Uh, so that that's one way that uh, a transplant can be performed uh, if we don't have a matched sibling or a matched unrelated donor. Uh, another alternative that's becoming uh, increasingly more popular is the use of family donors that aren't matched. Mm. Uh, in families, uh, uh, if uh, siblings uh, aren't matched, uh, they're often half-matched, and this just has to do with the way the genes are inherited uh, from our parents. Uh, now, half-matched transplants used to be very difficult. Sounds dangerous. Um, there, there were uh, significant problems with rejection of the graft because the patient's immune system, even though it's treated as part of the transplant procedure, uh, may still be strong enough to reject a graft that is very different uh, from the patient. Uh, and the other problem, uh, which has uh, always been uh, limiting, has been uh, the risk of the donor's immune system making the patient ill. 
that that's called graft versus host disease, mm. uh, and uh, that used to be uh, a limiting factor using uh, donors who were very mismatched. Uh, in the last 15 years, there's been a lot of work uh, with a new method to try and prevent that problem uh, using a special chemotherapy drug that's administered after the transplant, huh. uh, which is a very novel and um, a different way to prevent the immune complications of that procedure uh, turns out uh, to work very well. Uh, and so uh, many adult centers uh, feel that that's a optimal uh, choice if we don't find a well-matched donor to turn to a family member uh, who's half-matched and, and perform the transplant really with a different method to reduce the risk of the complications. Hmm. So then can most people find donors now? So uh, with that, uh, those, those two alternate uh, options, most people find a donor. Hmm. Uh, I, I should mention that uh, siblings are often half-matched, but children uh, and parents and even cousins, uh, aunts and uncles can be half-matched. So that really expands the potential donor pool. Hmm. So it's unusual not to be able to find a uh, a donor of that nature within a family nowadays. That's great. So then all these patients who, who require a transplant find a donor and then they're cured. Is that that's right? You're just curing everybody? So it depends on the on the disease. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's not always the, the case, unfortunately. Uh, transplantation uh, uh, works very well when patients are in remission, uh, particularly if it's uh, at the uh, time of their completion of their initial therapy. Mm -hmm. So the first complete remission in a patient with a standard leukemia uh, who has a well-matched donor is cured more than half the time. And the general statistic is that uh, without a transplant, the regular chemotherapy might cure somewhere between 30 and 45% of those patients. Mm. So the cure rates are increased uh, with our, the most common situations where we perform transplant. Uh, I think for uh, some uh, of the patients that we're choosing alternative donors, it's because we feel like we don't have other good options and those patients don't have a chance for cure without a transplant. Mm -hmm. uh, the cure rate for those patients may not be over 50%, but it may be close in some situations. Hmm. So is there anything being done or studied to try to improve uh, the cure rate for these various scenarios, there's a lot of uh, a lot of research trying to improve the outcome for most cancers, as as you know. And uh, uh, while there's a lot of that research being done uh, around methods to improve uh, transplantation outcomes, uh, there's a lot of major advances that have come along in treating these diseases based on the understanding of the biology of the diseases. So now we have oral drugs, pills the patients take for leukemias, for instance, uh, that can induce remissions, mm. uh, which is really quite striking. And um, uh, many of these treatments uh, have uh, not necessarily cured those patients, but have allowed for better control of their diseases, and in many cases, allowed for them then to proceed safely with a transplant. And so I, I think the combination of... Uh, uh, a lot of these new medicines given either before or sometimes after transplantation is, is really the way of the future in terms of improving cure rates. Hmm. So are there any specific things that you're particularly excited about that's coming down the pike or that you're studying? Well, there's there's uh, research trials we have at, uh, uh, at Yale that uh, we are excited about. 
there's uh, one new agent uh, being used to treat uh, stubborn leukemias or refractory leukemias. And I, I should mention that uh, as a general rule, transplantation uh, really doesn't work very well when uh, leukemias are, are not already in a pretty good remission. Mm-hmm. Uh, so patients diagnose and get standard chemotherapy, and uh, it's really a standard requirement that they have a good, very good response to that chemotherapy in order to proceed with transplant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not always the case. Uh, many patients either relapse after regular chemotherapy or, or don't go into remission. Uh, and trying to do a transplant under those circumstances is really quite difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's more dangerous, but doesn't usually result in a cure. Uh, there's a, a new agent uh, that combines an antibody with uh, radiation, hmm. uh, which is a common component of transplantation treatment. Uh, but in this case, the radiation is targeted to the bone marrow and the leukemic cells. And so uh, a, a good agent to treat leukemia is now available on a study to focus uh, the radiation to the bone marrow space and to the leukemia. Uh, and then then proceed with a transplant in patients who really haven't responded very well uh, to their standard chemotherapy. And that's a trial we're participating in because we're enthusiastic and it it offers a chance uh, at curative therapy, Mm. uh, whereas uh, such patients would probably uh, receive alternate chemotherapy in an effort to to just keep trying to get them in a better remission. uh, And that often fails. So here you're saying that the uh, the antibody, if I understand it, carries radiation to the cells, which are not in remission, and I guess kills them so that then you can give the donor product? Is that's, that what happens? That's correct. Hmm. No. Uh, it's a, given intravenously, so a lot of people envision radiation as something that's administered in the same fashion that, that people go for x-rays or, or CAT scans. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is formulated uh, with an antibody, and it's uh, it's given intravenously. It does require uh, some special care in isolation uh, for a few days in the hospital, uh, but that's uh, that's done uh, a week before the the admission for the transplant. Hmm. And what happens to their radioactivity in the body? I mean, are the people glowing? I, they're not glowing, but they, it's detectable, and uh, that's why they have to be in isolation uh, oh, gotcha. for a few days. And uh, and uh, the radiation is monitored until it's down to a safe level, and, and then they can be discharged. Hmm. Well, that sounds interesting. And um, then you mentioned that there are some uh, medicines which are being given either with a transplant or after a transplant to help the transplant work better? That That's correct. Uh, uh, we uh, we know, despite our, our hopes, that uh, uh, transplant may may cure half of patients, sometimes more than half of patients. But there's still a considerable portion of patients who may relapse after a transplant. So we are trying to incorporate some of the newer drugs that are active uh, uh, for for cancers. Uh, lymphoma is a good example. Uh, most common kind of lymphoma is called large cell lymphoma. And we have good treatments for that disease, and many patients are cured with chemotherapy. Uh, but patients who don't go into remission or who relapse uh, often come to a transplant in in that disease, uh, autologous transplant using meaning the patient's own using the patient's own cells right. uh, is a common procedure. 
Um, uh, this is a trial that we have uh, activated where uh, a new oral drug uh, that targets the, the lymphoma cells uh, is given uh, to patients after the transplant uh, to try and keep people in remission. Uh, and so that's, that's another example of uh, combining uh, new things with some of our older uh, therapies trying to improve the cure rates. Hmm. So it sounds like really you need to work very carefully with the initial or primary treating oncologist or hematologist to kind of put in a big picture um, how the transplant fits in and and what kind of monitoring is done afterwards. Or uh, that's that's right. We we do uh, share. Uh, care of patients with uh, referring hematologists and oncologists, uh, and uh, there are there are a lot of moving parts in terms of collecting stem cells, timing a transplant. Um, but I, I think it's also the communication is important, so that uh, treating physicians know these new types of therapies are available, uh, and some of them have to be given at a certain time point in the course of a disease, or uh, they may not be available. And of course, the clinical trials are important because we're uh, we may be using established agents, but if we're combining them in a new way, we don't know if there might be different side effects. And of course, uh, performing trials in a structured manner really allows us to determine if if they work, if they're, they're beneficial. Because um, uh, there's always the possibility uh, combining things may increase toxicity and, and not change the outcome compared to. Uh, our, our standard therapies. Dr. Stuart Seropian is an associate professor of hematology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.